0: Good morning once again. My name is Pastor Eric. I'm the uh, pastor of student ministries here at Faith. Um, pastor Steve is on vacation for a few weeks, so um, for these next couple weeks I will be taking you through the scripture. And then uh, Pastor Levi Anderson, our new pastor of evangelism and discipleship, will take us uh, on a week study as well. Um, well, today we're going to be looking at a passage that uh, is fairly common and well known. And that's the passage of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. If you want to take your Bibles and open that up, that would be a great thing. I've titled our message today, From Death to Life. Now, if you've been around church for very long, or if you've grown up in the church, this passage of Ephesians 2, these first 10 verses are probably pretty familiar to you. I know that for myself, I've read and I've I've heard this passage a number of different times, and I think because of that, though, there's this temptation that we have that we can um, kind of mentally check out or, or maybe gloss over uh, this passage. But yet, I'm a firm believer that as Hebrews 4.12 tells us that God's word is living and active, I believe that it still speaks to us today. So I want to challenge us, if this is the first time that you're hearing this passage, or the hundredth time that you are hearing this passage, I want to invite us to enter into this time that we're going to have together, and enter into this text, and ask God that he would take his living and active word, and challenge us, to encourage us, to reveal his truth to us in a fresh new way. To renew our hearts and our commitment what it looks like for us to go on this journey that he's put us on called life. So I want to ask you if you would pray with me as we ask for God's blessing on our time this morning. Father, we come before you this morning as we have just sung the amazing power of your name and how you are enough. Father, we've sung about this resurrecting power that you have and that you desire to resurrect us through your spirit. Father, as we come to your word this morning, I pray that you would refresh our hearts, open our eyes in a fresh new way so that we can understand and hear from you and your word to us. In your name that we pray, amen. Well, let me read to you Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I'm reading from the NIV version. You can follow along in the Bible that you have with you. As for you, you are dead in your transgressions and sins and this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You know, one of the things that I love about this passage that kind of pops out to me right off the bat in Ephesians 2, is that it centers around the truth that life is... Can be found in Christ. You know, in fact, if you you could summarize this passage up by saying, sin leads to death, but Jesus leads to life. And I just want to kind of start off with that this morning. I know it may sound really simple um, to many of you, and on, and on one hand, it is. It's it's a likely a message that we hear very often. But I think because of its simplicity, I think we fear, we we sometimes we lose sight of how profound of a message that is. And the way that that impacts and alters our life today. Because what this passage unlocks for us is the core truth of what the gospel really is. In all of its simplicity, is that sin leads to death, but Jesus leads to life. And so, as Paul begins this chapter, he actually does so by linking or, or joining, uh, the last chapter, chapter one, and the beginning of this chapter together with this phrase, as for you. And I'm not sure what it was like for you when you were growing up in school, but there was a few times when I might have been involved in a little bit of a mischief with some of my friends. I was never the instigator, of course, always, always the victim always always the one who got pulled along right uh, but whenever we i mean they would get caught by the teacher we always knew what the first order of business was going to be and that was going to be a get a stern talking to from that teacher you know in some cases a the teacher they would begin by looking at my friends And, and they would begin going into and explaining, you know, what they did wrong and, and why it was, why it was not acceptable. And, and then they would begin to dish out and explain what the consequences are going to be. The punishment, the discipline for their actions. Maybe they were going to have to stay inside from recess. Maybe they were going to uh, have to stay after class for a detention. Maybe you'd have to sit in the classroom during lunch hour and eat lunch with the teacher. Maybe you'd have actually end up having extra homework. And as you sat there, I remember waiting patiently for the teacher to finish, you're a little scared, right? You're a little afraid because you're not really sure what's coming next. Then that moment would come when the teacher was done with them. They would send them off um, for their punishment, for their discipline or whatever. And then they would turn around to you and they would say, now ask for you, young man, the teacher just gets done dealing with that whole pack, your whole pack of friends, right? Sends them off with their discipline, and then you hear the phrase, Now ask for you, young man. And when you hear that, you know what's coming next out of their mouth is not going to be pretty. You know the next thing that comes out of their mouth is actually going to be worse than what they just told your friends was going to happen. right? Anybody with me on this? Anyone have that same feeling when you're in school and that happened to you with the teacher, Right? Well, that's the kind of feeling that you have as you begin to read Ephesians chapter 2. Because Paul shifts his focus from the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. If you look back with me to the end of Ephesians chapter 1, and beginning in verse 18, Paul is expressing his heart for the believers in Ephesus. He says this, starting in verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age but also. In the one to come, Paul centers this prayer for the believers around them, knowing the power of God. So, the word power here is the Greek word dunamis, which means a miraculous power or, or might. Paul's describing that it was this dunamis power that, that raised Christ from the dead, seated him in, in the heavenly realms. And if you read on in verse 22, put all things under. His authority. Paul's praying not that the believers would ask God for this power, but that the eyes of their hearts would be open to see that this power has already been demonstrated in their life by nature of the relationship that they have with Christ. In addition to this, Paul desires that they would see that the same power is available to them to help enable and help equip them to live out and carry on the life that God is calling them to live. I pray that you may know the incomparably great power for us who believe. It's it's a personal, it's a deep, it's an intimate knowing and and interaction of this power. Well, Paul was so enamored, he was so caught up in, in the beauty and the majesty of the person of Christ. And then he, he's, he switches back to his audience, and he says, "Now, as for you believers in Ephesus, let's talk about who you were. Let's talk about your story. Here's Christ, his incomparably great power. Now let's talk about you and who you were. Verse one: "As for you, you are dead, and you are transgressions and sins." That's it. End of story. End of verse 1. You are dead in your transgressions and sins. You know, the type of death that Paul's talking about here is not one of a physical nature, but of a spiritual nature. One that is the result of our sin and our transgressions. And because of our own wrongdoing, because God is such a holy and righteous God, He cannot be in the presence of sin. We've become separated from Him. The one who gives us life. I don't know, maybe you've heard the phrase that there's two different types of people in the world. right? For example, there are two different types of people. There are those who are early birds, and there are those who are night owls. Anybody with me on that? See those walking around with coffee? Those are your night owls. Yes, I see that coffee cup over there. Yes, yes. Um, There are also those who put the toilet paper over those who put it under I think I'm going to cause a little uh, angst here amongst family relationships and then there are those who, uh, who love Chick-fil-A and there are those who don't yet know they love Chick-fil-A let's call it that, alright but on a more serious note, there are only two types of people There are those who are spiritually dead, and those who are spiritually alive. Because when it comes down to it, Scripture doesn't give us any middle ground. Scripture doesn't give us a third type of person. You are either dead, or you are alive. There are no other classifications in Scripture Besides dead or alive. There's, there's no distinction between church people and unchurched people or, or people who grew up in the church or people who did not grow up in the church. There is no distinction between incredibly good people or, or good people or relatively good people or, or somewhat good people or not so good people or somewhat difficult people and somewhat challenging people and really challenging people and extremely difficult people. There's no distinction between people who say, well, my dad was a pastor. Well, my uncle was a pastor. Well, we lived next door to a pastor. I knew a pastor once. A pastor married us. It doesn't matter. None of that matters. All that matters is if you know if you are spiritually dead or spiritually alive. Because according to Scripture, at the end of the day, it's not going to matter how many churches you attended, how many pastors you knew, It's only going to matter the condition of your heart before God. Is it dead? Or is it alive? And according to verse 1, Paul says and describes all of us as being dead in your transgressions and sins. See, the interesting thing about sin is that sin doesn't make us bad. Sin makes us dead. Romans 3.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. Meaning that the result or or the payment of our sin is death. Eternal separation from God. That started in the garden when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit and humankind ever since then has had a sinful nature up to today. And because we have that sinful nature we are also subject to death. Sin leads to Death. Well, Paul goes on to explain how the sin nature expressed itself into our lives. As for you, you are dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest... We were by nature objects or deserving of wrath. Isn't it interesting to note in these three verses the specific phrases that Paul uses to describe those who are affected by sin? All of you, as for you, all of us in verse three, like the rest. Is Paul leaving anybody out of those descriptions? Absolutely not. Paul did not spare any expense to make sure that his readers knew and understood that no one is exempt from this condition. Everyone was dead because of sin. What this doesn't leave is any room to think that some people are better than other people. That that my sin isn't as bad as your sin. No, all of us have sinned. And like the rest, we all deserve Death. I know that that's not necessarily a a really feel-good message, you know, that you may want to put on a Hallmark greeting card and purchase and and give that to someone you care about on their their next birthday. Happy birthday! You're dead! (laughs) But it's the truth of what Scripture teaches about who we are and the condition that we have. And that right there creates a major dilemma for us. We're dead someone who's dead isn't able to do much for themselves. You know, in fact, they're not able to do anything at all. Dead people can't move. Dead people can't breathe. Dead people can't talk. Nothing. They are absolutely helpless. And the same thing is true for us spiritually because of our sin. We have no ability, not even an interest in restoring ourselves back to God. Look at Romans 3 really quick. If you want to flip over there, just listen to these verses. Romans 3. Paul, again, describes who we are and the the fact that we have no interest or desire to be brought back into a relationship with God. Verse, uh, Verse 10. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. God and the life that he created for us. But thankfully, Paul is not done. He paints a pretty bleak outlook of who we were. But then he continues on in verses 4 and 5 of Ephesians chapter 2. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. You know, these two verses, and specifically these two words, they're the hinge that shifts the trajectory of our story 180 degrees. But God... You know, our our story of redemption would would be non-existent if it wasn't for God taking the initiative and stepping into our world and redeeming us out of that life of sin that we had and making us alive with Christ. That's the core truth of our story in Christ, isn't it? That sin leads to death, but Jesus leads to life. That resurrecting dudamus of God, the resurrecting power that we are just singing about with Pastor Brian is given us life in Christ. I mean, Think about the contrast of who we were and what this does for us. We were, we were dead in our transgressions and sins. But God. We were helpless. We were unable to do anything on our own. But God. We followed the ways of this world and, and, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. But God. We lived all among them at one time. But God, we gratified the cravings of our flesh and the sinful nature. But, God, we were by nature objects of wrath. But, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions. For it is by grace that you have been saved. You know, it's like God steps into our story and He doesn't like how the ending is turning out to be. He doesn't like the rest of the book. And so He rips out the remaining chapters and He takes a new sheet of paper and He starts a new chapter with the two words, but God. And He rewrites our story. But that's not all. Paul goes on in verse 6. He says, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms In Christ Jesus. So, not only do we have this new life in Christ, but we've also been raised up with Him. And we have a new home and a place for us in the heavenly realms. We've been forgiven that bondage of sin that Paul talks about in the book of Romans over our lives. It's been broken. And we now have the ability to live according to His purpose and His plan and His priorities for our lives. Why did God do this? Verse 7 goes on, Paul says, In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Meaning that those who have been made alive with Christ will forever, forever and always be in awe and wonder of the unending grace and the love that God has for us. We will never tire and we will never come to the end of God's love for us. His love endures forever. Our major dilemma has now turned into a massive offer. And that offer is this. To receive this truth as a gift. Through faith in who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for you and for me. Will you and I recognize and choose to receive this gift of life that he's offering to us? By grace, through faith, in Christ alone. Verse 8 and 9. For it is by grace that you have been saved. Through faith, this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. Because it's a gift, it's something that you and I can't earn or work towards. It's something that God has already done for us by sending Jesus Christ down to earth. Taking on himself the punishment of our sin and giving us the opportunity to have new life. Sin leads to death, but Jesus leads to life. But we need to choose to receive that by grace, through faith in Jesus. Thirdly, Paul reminds the believers as he goes on into this last verse, chapter of uh, verse 10. He says the, about the implications that those who are believers have because of their relationship with Christ. He describes us as God's handiwork. Or in some translations, God's workmanship. You know that word workmanship is actually the Greek word poema, which is the word that we get the word poem from. In essence, in describing us as God's workmanship, Paul is describing us as God's poetry, his work of art that he's writing on our lives. We are his workmanship. We are his masterpiece. I don't know, if you're a creative person, and someone who perhaps um, you're an artist or, or a songwriter or, or maybe a poet, you know that uh, creating something like that is a labor of love. Brings you great joy as you pull out that blank piece of paper or, or perhaps an, a blank canvas. As you look at that, as you think about that, you, you, it becomes a place where you can utilize your gifts to, to really express your hopes, your dreams, your vision, your thoughts. And in many ways, that work of art, be it a song or a poem or a piece of artwork, it becomes a reflection of who you are. And it always points back to the one who created it. It reflects the very heart and the design of you, the creator. Well, many people don't know this about me, but I actually have had a piece of poetry uh, that I wrote get published once. Uh, it was just a couple years ago when I was eight. Um, my uh, my hometown newspaper had a had a kids section called the mini page, and as there's a section in the mini page of a place where kids could submit their favorite drawings or a joke or a poem, and uh, they could get published. And so I I submitted a short poem that I had wrote, and uh, and when it was published, my mom did what most moms do. Uh, they cut it out and they saved it for me. Thank you, moms. Um, And before my mom passed away a number of years ago, she had shared this with me, uh, along with a couple other childhood memories. Um, Can can I read it to you? Would would you mind? I think that they have it up here on the screen. It's called, In Winter. When I have have drunk my orange juice and cocoa in a cup, I put my woolly snowsuit on, and get it fastened up. I get to school and take it off and hang it on a rack. And then when recess comes around, I have to hurry back and put it on to go and play. And then when play is through, I take my snowsuit off again. No easy thing to do. And when it's time to leave for home, I heave a sigh and then I take that woolly suit of mine and put it on again. Not bad for an eight-year-old, no? Thank you! Move over Robert Frost, there's a new poet in town. I uh, I read this to Jill the other night after I found it in my closet, and her first reaction was, are you sure you didn't have anyone else help you write that? (laughs) Telling you, But as you listen to this poem, I mean, can't you sense the tension, the struggle of an 8-year-old who is, always has to continually take on and take off that woolly snowsuit multiple times a day? I mean, man, the struggle is real, right? I mean, it is difficult. But in the same way as I use that poem to express my heart and my thoughts as an 8-year-old about woolly snowsuits in the wintertime, To create this masterpiece, so has God taken the time to express his own heart and thoughts towards you into your life. Beginning with your salvation. So that your life and your story can actually be about his story. And be a testimony to the transformation and the work that he's done in your life. You are a masterpiece written on by God, beginning with your salvation for the purpose of giving glory and honor and majesty back to your creator. And that story that he is calling you to write is this, that you were once dead, but through faith in Jesus Christ, by his grace, you have now come alive in Christ. You have been raised up from the dead and you now sit with him in the heavenly realms. And because of that, you now have a God ordained purpose to bring glory and honor back to him by doing the good works that he's called you and I to do as a way to reflect and to express the change and what God has written on your heart, his masterpiece. These good works, they don't save us by any means, but they're a response to the one who has saved us. It's Jesus Christ himself. Sin leads to death, but Jesus leads to life. And if you're here today, and you've already made that decision, and you've made that commitment to put your faith and trust in Christ, can I just encourage you? Can I encourage you? Man, how are you living your life in a way that brings honor and glory Back to God. How are you living your life as a masterpiece to the purpose and the priorities and the plans that God has for you? How has He gifted you to serve others? How has God uniquely equipped you to meet the needs of other people? Maybe here in our church, maybe in our community, maybe in your neighborhood. What ways can you reflect God's workmanship in your home, your office, at the park? Or in your neighborhood this week. God is giving us opportunities. He is giving us a way. As his masterpiece. To reflect what he has done in our lives. Will we take that offer? But if you're here today. And you haven't made that commitment. To put your faith and trust in Jesus. Let me encourage you to consider making that decision today. And to move from death to life. As you begin to see the dunamis power of God at work in your life. We would love to meet with you. We have elders that will be in the back of the prayer room after the service today. Uh, If you have any questions, uh, or you can connect here with myself or any of the other pastors here at our church. Our major dilemma has now turned into a massive offer. But will we choose to receive it? Father, I thank you so much for our time this morning that we have been able to look at your word. Father, Ephesians 2 is such a rich passage that many of us have heard of it before. But Father, I pray, as we consider the impact of our death, of being dead, but also the significance and the impact of being made alive in Christ, Father, that would spur us on, your spirit would be at work within us, that we may reflect your masterpiece, your workmanship in our lives, and all that we do and say.